Let's pray, guys. Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you just for this opportunity you've given us to be able to be here as a youth group, God, to, uh, to come before your word, God, to try to understand it. God, I pray that you would help us um, to be able to have softened hearts, God, that sees our lives in light of the gospel. Uh, God, I, I pray that you would help us to see our need for Christ, God, and that, um, yeah, it would even just lead us to have good discussions later in our small groups. Uh, God, help us to understand. God, help me to teach clearly, uh, to speak clearly. God, and I pray that you would have, um, yeah, just help us to know Christ just a little bit better because of our time. God, thank you. Praise your son's name. Amen. All right. I want to start our time by talking about a uh, very strange and distant land. So it's a very strange and a distant land. So one, where the weather is currently almost like it's living like, like you're living in a refrigerator, so it's just freezing all the time. A land where Japanese food, like good Japanese food, just doesn't exist. It's not there. Uh, and everyone in this place, like they all wear like these jackets from the same brand. This brand's called Patagonia for some reason. So this strange place is called Northern California, okay? So, or some people call it NorCal, right? So NorCal, Northern California. Uh, how many of you guys, you don't need to respond, just raising your hand. How many of you have been to NorCal before? Raising your hand, yeah, kind of, a lot of people, okay. Uh, so if you've ever been to places like San Francisco, Yosemite, Sacramento, uh, Sacramento, then uh, you've been to NorCal before. Uh, and there's a couple of ways that you can get to NorCal from here. Uh, one is you can take an airplane, so you just fly up there. It's a pretty quick flight. Uh, you can also drive up there, right? So for a lot of us that want to save some money, you just drive up to NorCal. And on this drive up to NorCal, there's a couple things that you kind of see on the drive up that you don't really see around here in Torrance. Uh, one of those in particular that you see a lot of is farmland. Farmland is just everywhere uh, on the drive up to NorCal. Uh, literally, it's just miles and miles of farmland. Uh, sometimes you can go like for an hour on the whole drive and you just see farmland in your window uh, the entire time. Um, personally, I think farmland's cool. I, I, I kind of like that part of the drive up. But uh, you can kind of understand how that sometimes when you're driving up to NorCal and you're seeing just farmland for miles and miles and miles and you see that uh, for a super long time, uh, eventually you start to get like kind of accustomed to it, right? Like you get used to seeing that farmland and it almost comes to the point where you might not even think about it at all. It's like kind of just that thing in the backdrop that is just passing by as you're driving. Um, it, it almost becomes kind of boring because it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. I bring this up because there's actually a lot of things in our lives uh, that can grow or that we can grow accustomed to over time. Uh, some examples is maybe your parents Maybe they make you the same meal like every week over and over and over again. For me, that was chili and hot dogs and you kind of get tired of it. Uh, you uh, maybe drive to school the exact same way every single time. You take the same turns, you pass the same school bus stop and you just don't think about it after a while because you just do it over and over again. Or maybe even your weekly routine, going to school, doing sports, hanging out with friends, extracurriculars, all of those things become just fairly regular because you're just doing them over and over and over again to the point where you just... Again, you just don't even think about it. It's just the thing that you do. You can kind of see it's really easy for us to not put any, any thought into these kinds of things that happen so frequently in our lives. So junior hires, today's passage that we're going to be looking at is something that I'm willing to bet likely many of you have probably heard many, many times in your lifetime already. And it is likely that by God's grace, many of you will continue to hear this passage from years to come. 
And just like the examples we showed, it might be tempting to treat this passage as something that becomes kind of like farmland on the way to NorCal. It's the same thing over and over and over again to the point where it just doesn't hold our thoughts, our emotions, and really anything captive or even keep our attention focused on it. However, unlike farmland or anything else that we can possibly become just accustomed to in this life, this passage tonight strikes deeply at our hearts because it has everything to do just with us personally as people. We aren't passerbys in this passage. We're not just observers as if we're like in a van, kind of just looking out the window and seeing the things go by. No, in this narrative, in this passage, we are participants. We are participants. I'm going to urge you up front as I'm going to do at the close of this message. Seek Christ. Seek him out and his gospel and do not settle for just passing by when it comes to the gospel message. So with that, you guys are coming to a close on this study through the book of Mark. And uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, or sorry, in a couple of weeks ago, Keith actually preached a message uh, through Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, where we read about uh, Jesus being condemned for crimes he didn't commit, uh, suffering injustices in the place of sinners like you and me. And so we're going to be reading a continuation of that verse here in 20, uh, verses 21 through 39. Uh, before you close that mark completely in a couple of weeks, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, in this passage, there are two main parties we're going to be interested in, and that is man or humans or just us because we're all humans, and then there's God, humans and God. And it's going to be through these two groups that we're going to try to understand the passage through tonight. And so we're going to look at that by seeing what man does in the context of this passage and then subsequently, we're going to try to see what God does as well. What man does, what God does. I think that's in your notes. So it should be pretty straightforward there. Uh, so we're going to start by reading verses 21. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please take them out. I, I did want to say at the beginning, he kind of mentions this, I think, most of his uh, sermons as well. If you don't have a Bible, uh, let us know. We want to make sure everyone does have a Bible. And I would say, particularly for you in junior high, I'd really encourage you to bring a Bible. Uh, even if you have a phone or something else you can look at, I, I think... Bibles, like having a Bible helps, um, especially when it comes to like looking through the word together. So pull your Bibles out. Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And uh, for this first section, I'll be reading up to verse 32. Uh, so Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him, him being Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charges against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So our first point that you're going to see in your notes is what man does. What man does. Uh, and again, I kind of mentioned it before, but I do want to make clear here that, that when we're referring to man in this passage, in this context, 
we are talking about all of humanity, so people, right? And uh, more personally, because I'm pretty sure everyone here is a human, uh, that includes us, right? All of humanity, us here as well. Uh, and every, person, every other person that's existed, every person that will exist. So what exactly does man do in this particular passage? What does man do in this particular passage? They crucify Jesus. They crucify Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is fresh off of being stripped. He's been scourged, which you guys found out about a couple weeks ago. It's like he's been whipped with uh, a, a special whip that's meant to tear off flesh. He's been bloodied in front of Pilate. And he's now being forced to carry this cross, the very piece that he's going to be nailed to shortly, uh, to the place of his eventual death, Golgotha. But because of just how beaten and bruised and broken down he had become, he's not able to carry the cross to the place of his crucifixion. So the Romans, then they have to basically grab this random guy, this pastor by name Simon, to carry Jesus' cross in his stead. Now Mark, who's the author of what we're reading, Mark is intentionally kind of light on details of exactly what crucifixion entails. Uh, we do know that crucifixion, at the very least though, involves uh, nailing both of Jesus' arms near the wrist to a horizontal beam, and then placing his feet one on top of the other, and nailing those to the vertical beam, and then hoisting them up on the cross so that he was hanging by those same places that he was just nailed to. Um, crucifixion, is it, it was meant to be a slow and painful death, as the one who was crucified would slowly bleed, slowly lose strength to breathe, and eventually die due to exhaustion and a lack of, or a lack of oxygen over time. Uh, but again, Mark's mention of the crucifixion here is just this simple sentence. And they crucified him. And they crucified him. That's it. The physical suffering of the crucifixion isn't the most important thing that Mark wants to focus on. Right? You might be thinking like, what? I, I thought what? Like that's, that's like the most gruesome, like visibly obvious part of the whole crucifixion. Like why wouldn't you focus on that? Well, if it isn't what Mark is focusing on, what is he focusing on then? What does he want to get at? What's more important to Mark then the physical suffering in the crucifixion is the significance of those sufferings. It's the significance of those sufferings. In other words, Mark wants his, re his readers to understand why, why Jesus is dying in the first place. And as readers today, all of us here, we're reading this passage, that means we need to understand why Jesus is dying in the first place. And to understand why we or really anybody should care at all about Jesus dying on the cross. The prophet Isaiah, more than 700 years before these events occur, he writes in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So what makes Jesus' sufferings so significant? It is because he suffers for our transgressions. He suffers for our iniquities. Jesus' sufferings are significant because the reality is he suffers on our behalf. And that's in reference to all of us. That means if those sufferings were meant for us, they were meant for us as we talk about, what, what, what could we have done that would have deserved such a gruesome fate like that? Or anything even remotely similar to that? And that's what we often call uh, and talk about is sin. Our sin is what condemns us as guilty people. Our sin is what separates us from God. Sin is something that we may often hear about 
And sometimes it's maybe easy to kind of like a sort of like vague idea of what it is uh, and what it really means. Uh, I think oftentimes, like myself included, like our understanding of sin is that uh, it's when we do like bad things or like when we do something wrong. Uh, it's the times when maybe we lie to our parents. Uh, it's the times when we gossip with our friends about someone else behind their back. Maybe it's a time that we pout, that we're just not getting the thing that we want. Um, maybe it's when we complain that we're not getting enough screen time. Uh, it's the times that we know we should be kind to someone, but instead we just decide to just ignore them completely. Uh, be- while it's true that that sin, like we were just talking about, is made up of like bad things, right? Uh, this definition alone, it kind of has the potential to kind of miss a little bit of the gravity of how deep sin is. When we sin, when we sin, we are all making a choice to deny the God of the universe. You see, God created us to live in obedience to him and to glorify him alone. But we decide that we'd rather not live that way. We'd rather live any other way that suits our needs and our own preferences. We idolize anything and everything else in this world. And we choose to live for those idols instead of God himself. That is why Jesus suffers because of my sin. Not because of his sin, because Jesus can't sin. Jesus does not sin. He suffers because of my sin, because of your sin, because we rebel against him and choose to live for anything else but him. So as the people physically crucify Jesus in this passage, we, in our sin, condemn Christ to the cross. But it doesn't stop there. We also see in this passage that man mocks Jesus and ridicules him. As if crucifying Jesus wasn't enough. Uh, we read of these countless mockeries made against Jesus as he's hanging from the cross in the passage. And by mockeries, I mean uh, like kind of teasing or making fun of. There's a few things like Jesus, for one, he's crucified amongst criminals, which shows that uh, what the people thought about Jesus, like he's just as bad, if not worse, than a criminal. Uh, they deny Jesus and his ability to uphold his promises. Right? They question uh, some of the things he said previously, uh, like in John chapter 2 about uh, destroying the temple and raising it up. And the question is power. The question is power. If Jesus was so powerful, why don't we just come down from the cross? Why don't he just come down and save himself so that these people, so that we could believe? If Jesus only came down from the cross, then we would believe in God ourselves. Now, uh, taking a step back. In this point in the passage, it kind of seems pretty clear, like who's somewhat at fault in, in the passage, right? Like, Clearly, all the people who are mocking Jesus and crucifying him, like, like, that's not good, right? Yes, that's exactly right. But just as Keith shared during the last sermon a couple weeks ago, we learned that these people we're describing, they're not just some like far-off conceptual or even like fictional, made-up story people that like kind of just are, live in this nebulous part of our minds. These people also represent us, all of us. We are those exact same people who not only sentenced Jesus to death with our sin, but we mock Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, pause. Wait a second. You might think, wait, but like, I wasn't physically there. I'm like here right now, right? Like that was like a long time ago. I was in the crowd like hurling insults at Jesus. So like, it wasn't really me. Um, When we think of our sin, when we think of sin, uh, there are some standout examples I think that we can all think of. And again, we talked about a little bit of these disobeying our parents, fighting with our siblings. Uh, 
I, I think we could kind of list off a lot of these things that we would all agree are probably not the best thing or they're wrong. Uh, but there are maybe some more subtle ways that our sin affects our everyday lives. Consider how often you've been selfish in your everyday life. And by selfish, I mean how often during the day or just during your life do you care about yourself and yourself alone? We can be selfish around our parents. We can be selfish around our friends. We can be selfish around our siblings. Even just people here at church. Even people here at this youth group. Or have there been times when we question God's power altogether? Like we make conditions for God. Meaning like we might tell ourselves that, you know, God, I'm only going to believe in you if you do a specific thing for me. Like I'll only believe in God if I get a good grade on this upcoming test. Or I'll only believe in God if he just lets me do the things that I want to do. Or I'll only believe in God if he just gives me a very comfortable life and lets me be successful in everything that I can do. What what are we doing exactly in these instances? We're basically telling God that the way he wants us to live, yeah, that's no good. I don't want to live that way. That we've come up with a better way that we should be living and the life that he wants us to live, it's not really worth it. We're no better than the people we read about in this passage. We hurl our own kinds of insults at the Son of God himself. And we tell him, we'd rather live life in our own way. And question his goodness, his sovereignty, and his power over life itself. Um, God cannot allow sin to just run rampant forever. It's against his character, being a just God. He's a just God. He needs to punish sin. Since it is against, again, his very nature. Left alone... If you kind of like stop right there, the story's kind of grim, right? Like it's kind of like, what? Like what do we do with this? Uh, it's, it's God dealing out punishment to sinners, and those sinners are more than deserving of those punishments. So what exactly happens then? Our passage continues. And that's where we're going to take a look at for the next point, and that is what God does. What God does. Again, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up again. We're going to start at verse 33 now, and we're going to go to the end of our, our, our text, which is verse 39. So verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So God does like a few really, really important things in our passage. Um, And I think those are also like in your notes as well too, but just so we can kind of fill it in here. First, God forsakes his son. God forsakes his son. What does it mean to forsake something? It means to abandon it, to abandon something. Like a more intense version of like the act of just leaving someone completely. In this case, God the Father abandons the son. God, who, he who has never been constrained to time itself, right? He's existed beyond uh, that w- which we can even comprehend as eternity, forever has lived in perfect union with the Son and with the Spirit. And now we read for the first time and the only time in the history of forever, God forsakes the Son. Go back to that question. Why? 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 It's to pay the price. 
that sinners like you and me deserve to be pained. God cannot let sin slide unpunished. And we ourselves are destined to an eternity of wrath from God because we are sinful. And God has every right to let us be punished as we deserve. But what does he do instead? What does he do instead? He sends Jesus, his only son, the one that he has been in perfect relationship with before time even existed. He sends that son to live as a man in a way that we were unable to, in perfect obedience to the father. And what does he do with that son? He lets his son suffer. He lets that son die on the cross and ultimately pay the penalty reserved for us. So what does that tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? It points to his unthinkable grace and mercy on us as undeserving sinners. Uh, it's not because of like anything that we do or did that God has the need of, of that he, or sorry, it's not anything that we did that God needs to save us, like we deserve it or anything like that. Uh, he does so in the abundance of his gracious character. Um, kind of like to somewhat relate, I guess. Like, have you ever encountered someone who was like difficult for you to love? Like for whatever reason, which is really hard to love. Like I definitely have. Um, I, I've definitely run into people that have been hard to love. And now imagine how hard it would be for like you to give up your most precious possession that you own. Like if you have a phone, maybe your phone, a Nintendo Switch, your, your favorite pencil bag, I don't know, like uh, whatever it is. Imagine how difficult it would be to give that one thing that is most precious to you up to this person that you have a difficult uh, time loving. Now imagine instead of that person that's difficult to love, it's someone who is like actively trying to cause chaos in your life. Someone who's extremely difficult to love. How hard would it be to try to do anything for a person like that? It'd be really hard, right? Like It'd be hard for me at least. Um, it'd be really hard. And yet here we see God doing exactly that, if not on a crazier degree for us, the ones who are actively rebelling against him. Forsaking the son is not the only action that God does in this passage. The son of God also is acting here. He dies on the cross. The son of God dies on the cross. Yes, God himself, Jesus, is crucified on the cross. Um, this is kind of a weird question, but like, how can you tell that something has been paid off? Like when you go to the store and you try to buy like a pack of gum or something uh, and you just like gave your cash to the cashier, uh, how do you know that that thing's been paid for? Um, you typically get some kind of, it's a rhetorical question, but thank you. you. You probably get some kind of receipt, right? Like something in return that confirms that that has been paid for, whatever it is that you paid for has been processed. How do we know that Christ was enough for sins? We talk about this, right? Jesus Christ died for sins. How do we know it was enough? It's because he actually dies. He dies. The punishment for our sins is indeed paid for. Christ dying on the cross marks the full completion of him paying the penalty that we deserved. Sinners who are saved by God's grace don't need to tremble in fear every day thinking that the salvation offered to them is ever going to be void because the reality is that with, the de with his death on the cross, Christ overcomes punishment reserved for those very sinners. Um, that leads us to kind of something fascinating about the cross. And we note that after Christ breathes his last in the passage, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. It's torn in two from top to bottom. If you ever remember hearing stories from the Old Testament uh, books of the Bible, you might recall the temple, right? Uh, it's how the Israelites would have to offer regular sacrifices to God. 
uh, as a means of their worship and, and confession to him. Uh, in the temple, there's a particular place that's deemed the most holy place, the holy of holies. Uh, and that was separated from other parts of the temple. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It was so sacred that only the, high, only the high priest was allowed to enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. What separated this place from the rest of the temple was this huge curtain. The very curtain that's mentioned here in this passage. And so imagine with me uh, this large curtain that separates the holiest of holy parts of the temple. And it tears from top to bottom. Which signifies it's not like someone came out of nowhere and tried to tear the curtain, right? It tears from top to, part, or top to bottom because God tears the curtain and that it lays in two pieces now. What does that mean? It means that God had now become accessible in a way that he was never accessible before. Jesus, the Lamb of God, became the ultimate sacrifice for people like you and like me. And by dying the death that we deserve, he paves the way for us not to only have our legal standing before God changed, it's not just the saving part, but now we're able to be in relationship with God. We get to know God and experience his love and his comfort firsthand. Where there was separation before is now access. And just think about that for a second, everyone. The God of this universe, the one who created all things, that was, that was ever created, and he sustains all of life as we know it today. The only God who ever was and ever is. This God who creates every single beautiful sunrise that you've ever seen, every starry night that blankets the sky, every moonlit evening, every intelligent mind who has ever created anything that's been interesting and unique in this world. This God who created and sustains all of that is now accessible to us. This God is accessible to us. The sinners who deserve absolutely nothing. Beyond, beyond God's grace and mercy, this is love. This is love that Christ's death puts us, um, that puts him in our place and us in his as sons and daughters of God. And truly those who are part of God's family, for those who believe, um, what an amazing grace extended to those who least deserve it. And, and that leaves us with kind of this tail end of the passage. I, I, I didn't, well, actually, I think I did read that part. I'm sorry, I'm going to read it again. Uh, verse 39, which depicts the response of the centurion. Uh, and that is, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Upon seeing the death of Christ, it's kind of ironic, uh, Irony, that the only person recorded to ever come to this conclusion, at least in Mark, is the centurion, right? So he's one of the, the guys that's charged at watching Jesus' crucifixion uh, as it took place. So uh, he's a Roman, so he's not even like a Jew. He's not uh, a disciple, not anyone who's been a part of Jesus' ministry. And this guy has probably seen hundreds of crucifixions over his lifetime, right? Like that's his job is to watch over these crucifixions. He's probably seen tons and tons and tons of these. And yet with this one in particular, he comes to the conclusion that this man, that this man is different, that this man's different. And he proclaims that Jesus was indeed the son of God. It's a very simple confession, very simple, but it's important nonetheless. And it's definitely true. Christ is the son of God. And like the centurion, that truth demands some kind of response from all of us. 
for the centurion, it's a confession. And, and though we don't know all the details recorded here, uh, there's a lot of commentators that are led to believe that this leads to a life of following after Christ for this centurion. But, but that brings the question back to us today in present time. And, and what I'd like to bridge back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, uh, which is the odds are, is uh, if you've been a part of Lighthouse for any amount of time, you've probably heard the gospel before. You've probably heard the gospel message before. You've probably heard of Jesus dying on the cross before. And if you continue coming to Lighthouse, you will, like by God's grace, be guaranteed to hear the gospel again and again. You're going to keep hearing the gospel. The question each and every one of us here tonight needs to be asking ourselves is, what do you do with the gospel? What do you do with it? How do you respond? Like, you hear it, and, and we kind of see it, maybe, or we talk about it. What do you do with it? How do you respond? We have the most immensely powerful and life-changing news provided to us in the death and resurrection of Christ. And the simple question that I would just ask all of us here today, myself included, does that change anything in your life? Does that change anything in your life? For many of us, uh, the temptation with these kinds of things is that we hear, again, things we hear over and over and over again, is to kind of treat it like farmland uh, on the drive to and from North Cal. Like you see it once, great, and then you just kind of put it in the back of your mind and you don't think of it again. I think many of you here tonight have that unique privilege and challenge of being, uh, I guess, quote unquote, used to hearing the gospel. But as a simple application for everyone here, can I encourage you all, can I encourage all of us to seek Christ, to seek Christ. By seek, I mean to pursue him. We pursue many things in this life. Like sometimes it's good grades in our classes. Sometimes it's like a nice jump shot when we're playing basketball. We pursue uh, being the best at whatever maybe video game we're into right now. Or other times it's like trying to be on good terms with friends, uh, to be in good social standing. The point is we all pursue or we all seek out some things in our lives. And again, the question is, will we seek out Christ? Will we seek out Christ? Will we seek him out daily in our everyday lives? Will we seek him out in everything that we do? Uh, my hope and prayer for all of us here, for our church, and specifically for you junior hires, is that we will, uh, we will be seeking Christ and that we won't be okay with just riding along in this life without acknowledging the amazing truths of the gospel that are offered to us through him. Uh, so let's close our time in prayer and we'll go into small groups. Um, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word, uh, God, that reveals truths about Christ and you to us. God, we're thankful that you... Um, that you have given us more than we could ever deserve, God, in this life. God, you have, uh, you have offered us salvation through Christ, God. And I pray that for each and every one of us here that we would consider, God, what it is that Christ is offering. Uh, God, that we would consider for our own lives. God, see whether or not um, yeah, we see Christ uh, daily. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to be motivated to pursue him, God, in whatever way that looks like. I pray that you help us to be honest and open in our times in small group. God, help us to be able to enjoy our time together. And ultimately, God, I pray that we would know Christ just a little bit better through times like this. Uh, so, God, thank you again for everyone here. Thank you for this time. We're praising your son's name. Amen.